You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to To Stir With Love, a criminal justice reform podcast. Today's episode is a little bit different than what we've done in the past. It really is mostly a conversation with the real professionals, with a criminal defense attorney and a public defender. There was probably more than 75 years worth of criminal justice acumen between them. Uh, so many cases and understanding. And um, you'll hear the conversation that they had. Uh, Rabbi Klokowski joins us later on and uh, raises some great points as well. Um, I think that it might not put solutions on the table, but I think it allows us the understanding and to really get to know the nuts and bolts of what it is that we believe needs to change. And therefore, it's edifying. So I present it here to you. Um, I hope you enjoy it. I have the distinct pleasure now uh, to introduce two gentlemen that I've come to know. Uh, Both of them are uh, distinguished criminal defense attorneys in the Chicago area. Uh, I was going to introduce first uh, Bob Goodman, who was a um, a public defender, assistant public defender for Cook County, and uh, Jonathan Minkus, who is a criminal defense attorney. Now, they are going to discuss. Um, I want to thank both of them for taking time out of their busy schedule uh, to be with us here. Um, you know, I don't know if it's age before beauty, beauty before age. Well, why don't we just do it in terms of uh, alphabetical order? So we have uh, B before J. So uh, although if, if we use your uh, Robert, <laughs> Jonathan would go first. But since you're known as Bob, Bob, why don't you start, start us off? Thank you, Rabbi, uh, for giving us the opportunity to talk about the criminal justice system. Uh, specifically, we're going to talk about plea negotiations and plea bargaining. Uh, and, and I would like to start off first, unusually, with a few examples, and then we can broaden the topic, and I'll give it to Jonathan after I give these examples. Uh, in my 35 years of experience as an assistant public defender, I had thousands of cases. A few of them stand out, and I'd like to talk about them. I had a person who was charged with armed robbery with a gun, which in Illinois carried 21 to 45 years. And I negotiated a plea with the state's attorney that if the defendant pled guilty, he would receive 17 years, which is four below the minimum. I took this to my client and he said, 17 years, not a chance. I told him that In his case, he had signed a statement confessing that he did the crime. There were two witnesses who ID'd him in a lineup, and they recovered a gun after chasing him, the police, and arresting him, and that gun had his fingerprints on it. So I told him that we didn't have a chance to win, and he was facing 45 years, and I could get him 17. He said, not a chance in the world. We're going to trial. We went to trial jury trial. He got convicted. He got 45 years. Another case I had, uh, the person was charged with attempt murder, which carries six to 30 years. And he was also charged with a second count of aggravated battery, which carried two to five years. I came to him and I said, listen, I negotiated a plea with the state's attorney that if you plead guilty to the aggravated battery, they will drop the attempt murder, and you get five years in the penitentiary. With the time that you have already done, it will only cost you another 14 months in jail. He said, not a chance. I'm not taking that. I said, well, they do have you on a video walking up to a security guard at the back of the bus and stabbing them twice, and it was clear that you were the aggressor. He says, not a chance. I'm not taking it. I said, okay, 
We went to a jury trial. He got convicted of attempt murder and he was sentenced to 19 years. And since he had to do about 85% of that under uh, the attempt murder statute, uh, he was going to do 16 years instead of 14 months. And the moral of the story is, is that when you're as experienced an attorney as myself and Jonathan, you kind of get to know what's a good deal, what's worth taking and what's not. And oftentimes the defendants are surprised that when they decided to go their own way, it didn't work out for them. The final example I want to make is a little bit more general. And in the thousands of cases uh, that I've had, um, this applies to several hundred of them. I may go up to a person who's been in jail for four months and say to him, you know, you have a triable case. You do have some chance to win. However, there are risks and rewards. I negotiated a plea with the state's attorney today and that if you want to get out of jail today, you can plead guilty and get two years probation. I said that that will be a felony conviction on your record for the rest of your life and you're going to have a tough time getting a job and do well on the streets with this conviction, but you'd get out of jail today. If you don't want that deal, then you can wait three, four, five, six months until you go to trial, but it's clear that you can't make bail, so you'll spend another three to six months in jail, and you don't know if you're going to win the case. Invariably, 99 times out of 100, the defendants say they're going to plead guilty and do plead guilty to get out of jail. Now, were they innocent? Were they guilty? I don't know, but I do know that they have to make that choice, and that's a hard decision. Get out of jail now or uh, take your chances at trial. And I wanted to just give these three examples so you understand the kinds of things that we deal with every day. Jonathan? Yeah. So, Robert, you know, I was fascinated by your stories, and I'll tell you my perspective on it. Um, my sense is, my, my guess is that if those individuals had privately retained attorneys um, who came to them with the exact same offers as you did, that they might have considered them um, more sincerely um, and with greater reflection. Like it or not, there's a pervasive feeling amongst people represented by the public defender's office that they are getting um, less than stellar legal representation. Um, if I heard once, I'd probably have heard a thousand times um, something along the lines of, I don't want a public defender, I want a real lawyer. The irony of that, of course, is that you and I both know that the quality of the representation um, overwhelmingly by public defenders in Cook County, yourself most notably included, is every bit, if not as, if not better than the vast majority of private attorneys. And so my guess is, is that your numbskull clients who turned down fabulous offers that only came because the state's attorneys know that you are extremely competent and that they uh, no doubt heard eloquent pleas on, their be on your client's behalf by you and also knew that you knew what you were doing in front of a judge or a jury. Uh, my guess is, is that part of the reason, if not a significant reason why those plea deals were rejected by your clients was because they didn't properly respect the fact uh, that you were a very, very skillful lawyer. I would uh, like to comment on that. 
I think that there is a pervasive view, as you say, that the public defenders are not going to do as good a job as the private attorneys. As a matter of fact, uh, I've been called uh, many times in my career a penitentiary dispenser and not, uh, instead of a public defender. And, and the problem is, is that there is a reality to it in this sense. Fortunately or unfortunately, we are part of a team so that I may have been assigned to a particular courtroom for a year or two. And the state's attorney was there in the same courtroom for a year or two and the sheriffs and the probation officers. And so you have this conflict that you're in one sense part of a team. On the other hand, you're supposed to raise bloody hell uh, in favor of defending your client, which goes against uh, what the state's attorney and the other people in the courtroom are doing. They have a, uh, a saying that they want to move the call and they want to get finished for the, the day. And any interruption like a trial will, will be a problem for them. So I, I actually think that defendants have good reason to believe that they are going to be better off with uh, a private counsel. And I, I would just like to end it by saying this. Jonathan knows that there are good public defenders, mediocre public defenders, and public defenders that nobody would want. I would argue to some degree it's the same thing with the private bar. There are known good attorneys, and among them are Jonathan, but there are other attorneys that are just doing it for the money, want to get rid of the case as fast as they can, and don't do that well for the client. So there's a mixed feeling. There's a a psychological sense that if you pay for something and the more you pay, you're going to get better value for your money. If that's true or not, I'm, I'm not always sure. The biggest problem that we have is the defendants cannot pick their public defenders. So they may, on the luck of the draw, get a good one or a bad one. Whereas if they pay for a private attorney, maybe at least they get some reputation in the private attorney. So at least they think they're paying for a good one. Go ahead, Jonathan. Yeah, no, I, I clarify, you know, Jonathan, um, you said that you thought that one of the reasons why the decent deal was offered to Bob's clients or Bob's wards was because they knew that Bob was there, right? In other words, they knew that Bob was around. They knew that Bob who understood his job. Yeah. You implied that let's say you'd have a less experienced or less um, skilled public defender, then the state <laughs> might not have offered uh, the same type of deal, right? You I see it all the I see it all the time. Um, less so the rabbinic field or the the, the medical field. The people who are entrenched in it know who's good and who's not. They know quality and they know mediocrity. And I think that's, so it seems that what could be a deseratum is some sort of independent agency that could help um, people who have been incarcerated or arrested, not yet uh, incarcerated, uh, be able to discover, oh, this is what this public defender's rating is. This is what's going on. Um, there might Rabbi, as I said, you can't pick your public defender. And the reason is this 90% of the people would pick 10% of the public defenders and, and not have the other ones because they had a worse reputation. <laughs> we we have we have judges constantly telling the defendants when the defendant goes into the court, I don't want this public defender, I want a different one. And the judge invariably every time says, you don't get to pick. He was assigned to your case and you're going to stick with him. And I'll give you a very interesting story. In the public defender's office, one time this happened. A person accused from murder got one of our murder task force um, defense attorneys. And the defendant said in open court, I don't want this defense attorney public defender to represent me. I want a different one. The judge said the same thing. 
you don't get to pick. He's been assigned your case. And the judge and the defendant kept arguing and the defendant refused to go along with what the judge was saying. And he turned around and he punched the public defender in the face who fell down and hit his head against a table. And that defendant was allowed to have a different public defender because he created a conflict that was so bad. Plus, he had a murder case. And so this little aggravated battery to a public defender didn't matter to him. But unless something as extreme as that happens, you don't get to pick. You have to stay with the one you want. So your suggestion that they're, you're rated will not help. That could help on who you get for the private buyer, but that's not going to help for 90% of the cases that we get. Well, it could, it could help, I think, Bob, to, for you to reject the public defender. If the public defender has that rating from an independent agency, you could say, hmm, you know what, I'm going to try to dig deep and ask my relatives to help me hire a private attorney. Uh, at least that way, the, the person who's in jail has some idea of who he's dealing with, right? Because I, I don't know how you would ever do those ratings. They, they, it, it would be so re- ridiculously arbitrary. Um, and subjective. And subjective. I, Why is it that in the medical field, you know, they, they come out, U.S. News, and it's based no, on... But if, if Bob gets a client um, using his first example a fraction of the time that he, the minimum time that he was facing, um, did he still do a great job for that client? Of course he did. Of course he did. By any objective measure, except if somebody's looking at it, they would say, oh, but the client still got seven years or whatever, whatever it was. There's no way to do that right now. Uh, Okay, look, I'm going to admit that I'm an amoritz. I paid for a lawyer I paid for my son's uh, legal uh, costs. So I guess I created a lawyer, but I don't, but, but all I can tell you is that the same way I see, you know, there's a, a consortium of doctors who somehow decide who is, who's good. There might be a way just to help people out that there should be someone with a little dossier and saying, Oh, you got a good defender. You don't need to spend money on, on a private attorney. Because, because as you know, look, the rates of a private attorney can be extremely high, right? I, I'm not asking what your rates are, but 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 Jonathan, what, what, what's the typical rate now uh, that it would, would cost for someone? Well, most criminal defense lawyers bill, do not bill by the hour. It's just a flat fee. Um, in uh, I've been a criminal defense lawyer for 37 years now. And in 37 years, I have never, not once, billed a client by the hour. I look at the case. I, I make a guess as to how long I think it's going to take me to resolve it. And I quote a flat fee. And I sometimes I make a good bet and sometimes I make a bad bet, but I have to live with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I wasn't and, trying to pick Rabbi, you You have to understand that these people are in jail when they can't raise $500 to make bail. These people are the, the people who are committing the crime are also uh, the poorest people in, in the city. There, there's a direct correlation between poverty and, and crime. So these people, you could say, mom, I heard I got a horrible public defender, go raise $2,000, you know, or $4,000 or $10,000, or $1,500 and get me a good private attorney. And the mother's going to say, we can't put food on the table. We're not, we can't raise $100 extra to go to your defense. You're going to have to have the public defender, good, bad, or indifferent. So I think that you're really underestimating the uh, sacrifice and the amount of money it would take to hire a per- person like Jonathan Minkus. And that doesn't mean that he's cheating them. That means that he knows that these people are going to be represented. If they want to be represented by him, that's his fee. Um, Bob, why, why aren't there repercussions for um, inadequacy in, in, in the public defender? I mean, we know there are, there are, there are. There's cases something called, go, go, Jonathan. Sure. Cases get reversed by higher courts. 
constantly for ineffective assistance of counsel, both from privately retained counsel and public defender. And if I had to venture a guess on the relative proportions, I would guess they're reversed more for ineffective assistance of counsel from privately retained attorneys than experienced public defenders like Bob. Uh, and, and but do you don't do you don't you need to hire another lawyer to create that investigation or does that happen on its own? Public, if they don't have money, the public defender has an appellate division and they're more than happy to go against the public defender in the lower court. There, the yeah, we have a conflicts, you know, uh, station that that people are willing to argue against the public defender in their own office. They're, they're, you know, the problem with, with, with that is it could take years before the court reverses the decision and the guy may have spent that amount of time in jail so that we all know that the judicial system does not operate very efficiently or quickly. I have a, I, I'd like to go to a different, more controversial issue and, and see what Jonathan thinks of this. This is not based on hard statistics, but it's based on my experience. And I want to see if Jonathan agrees with me. I would say about 90% of the cases that the public defender and include the private buyer gets probably plead guilty. Uh, and of the other 10% that go to trial, I would say that we win or the private buyer wins maybe 50% of those. If I'm correct, that means that 95% of the clients that we serve are found guilty or plead guilty. And what that does is it changes the foundation of what we're really trying to do and what our job is. Because I would say that a lot of the criminal justice system is really about what is a fair punishment? Because it's much more likely, like nine out of 10 times, that the person is going to face punishment rather than get found not guilty. And what I want to know is, what is a fair punishment if a person commits a burglary? Does he deserve probation? Does he deserve three years? Uh, but because of his prior record, does he deserve 10 years? And therefore, I think that there's too much emphasis on whether a person is innocent or guilty and not enough emphasis on what is a fair punishment. What do you think, Jonathan? Wow. Um, well, I agree with all of your premises, that's for sure. Um, I think, um, and I'm sorry, Rabbi, you probably were hoping for, um, you know, a more uh, adversarial conversation, but Bob and I are, for better or for worse, very much on the same page. Most people plead guilty. Um, most people plea bargain. Very few cases go to trial. Uh, the cases that do go to trial, I think, result in a smaller percentage of victory than Bob suspects, although I, I, I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of what the punishment ought to be, um, for instance, to use your analogy, or use your example, rather, Bob, on burglary, residential burglaries in the state of Illinois uh, are not probationable. Um, and I've always found that to be incredibly onerous and, and unfair. Uh, Bob and I have represented, I'm sure, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people charged with residential burglary, even burglary to a garage, Rabbi, where... Um, you can't get probation. It's non-probationable. Doesn't matter. It, it, it doesn't matter what you did, who you are, what your life looked like or will look like. You can't get probation. And if the prosecutors, you know, want to stick it to you, they'll stick it to you. And there's nothing that the judge could do because he's stuck with with a sentencing statute. So um, I agree. I, I think that the legislatures, not just in Illinois, but all over, uh, need to be way more focused, especially on nonviolent crime, on non-custodial um, uh, resolutions 
and considerations in terms of punishment than just simply locking people up. You know, I, I think when I hear what you're saying about um, if, a, if a trespass has occurred, in other words, someone has gone into your house or garage with intent to steal some of your stuff, um, there's no probation in Illinois. And part of it, I think, is built in this, um, almost from the biblical standpoint, that we have the, the same thing. when the Torah writes in, in Parshas Mishpatim, that if somebody, if you find somebody tunneling into your house, aim low domim, right? Yes, there's no, you don't have to, you don't have to worry, you can kill it, because there was this idea that if, if you're breaking into someone's house, we view you as a potential murderer, um, and, and, and there was this, I, the, the trespass was considered a violation of the highest extreme. Um, it, it could be, you're right, Jonathan, that today's sensibilities are different, Um people break into people's cars, into garages and houses, but they aren't necessarily um, violent criminals. Um, they can't, right? They, they're, they're addicts and other things. They can't, you know, I'm, they're not, I'm not condoning what they're doing, but I think part of the reason why there might've been this, 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 this antiquated sense of things is, 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 is from the old fashioned perspective. Do you agree, Bob, that it might be time to to change that perspective as well? Well, as Jonathan points out, the residential burglary statute is the one that many people, especially in the defense bar, think is totally unfair because we would often find the case of an 18-year-old kid who was a straight-A student in, in school. He thought it was funny and he broke into a house. He has no criminal record. And, and, and he stuck with four years at a minimum uh, in the penitentiary because there's no leeway unless the state's attorney, um, uh, you can convince him uh, that, that this kid should be given a break. That, that's the, the whole point of plea bargaining. And the interesting part of it is, is that you don't have to follow the strict rules. If you can convince the state's attorney, sometimes he'll reduce a felony to a misdemeanor which is way better from the defendant. Sometimes when the minimum is six years, he'll give them change the, he, he has the right to change the, uh, what the crime is and give him way less time. There is flexibility if you have a state's attorney that is willing to, to go with it. And what I have to tell you is that the state's attorney in the courtroom is often mirrors who the judge is. And what I mean by that is the judge sets the tone of every courtroom. Every, and Jonathan, I'm pretty sure will agree with this, that the way the judge operates takes consideration in how the state's attorney operates. If you have a liberal-minded judge, then the state's attorney will do liberal-minded things. If you have a tough judge, uh, a strict judge, a no-nonsense judge, the state's attorney is going to be a no-nonsense individual and they will not give the defendants a break. So what you have to understand is that there is a team effort going on between the judge and the other parts of the courtroom. And, and that goes ahead uh, with the plea bargainings because what we haven't talked about with is that, and Jonathan, I'll, I'll turn it over to him, that even if the defendant and the state's attorney agree to a certain deal, and even if the defendant agrees to it, we're going nowhere on that deal unless the judge gets involved and how he gets involved. And maybe Jonathan could talk to that. Well, well, Bob, of course, you're absolutely right. And uh, we both have had, huh, I, I mean, I don't, countless, innumerable, plea negotiations that uh, we couldn't get past uh, the judge because the judge has to approve it. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, one of the things I was wondering as you were talking about is how often did you find in your career that uh, the state's attorneys were declining to cut your clients essentially the same breaks that they were otherwise cutting private attorneys? Well, I, that's an interesting uh, issue. And I have to say this, what I understood 
late in my career is that I had to befriend one aspect of the criminal justice system, one, one type of people that I can do better with. I didn't want to befriend other public defenders. We, we were in it together. I had nothing to gain. And I didn't think it was worthwhile to even befriend the judge because the judge only gets involved at the end. So what I, in the beginning of my career, I was fighting with the state's attorney. Everything was a duel, a courtroom uh, a duel, and I tried to beat them. Later in my career, when I discovered that most cases aren't going to trial anyways, I decided to befriend the state's attorneys and get on their good side because they have 400 cases. They don't want to go to trial. They want to get the case over with. And if they trusted me as a public defender, that I was honorable with them and I just got to know them over time, then they usually gave me oftentimes better deals than I thought that I saw that they were giving other people. Wow. What it, what well, that's heartening. Uh, I would not, I'm not saying I always got better deals than the private attorney. I know what you're saying. They did give um, special consideration to private attorneys. Maybe they gave you especially good consideration if they knew that you were a former state's attorney in your younger days before you went to the defense bar. But I'm not comparing what I got with against defense attorneys. I'm comparing what I got with other public defenders. If other public defenders went into the room always with attitude, then the state's attorney would fight back. But in my case, I try to befriend them. Yeah, and, and I think you had uh, a colleague. Um, agree, Jonathan, I'd like to hear about it, is about relationships. Oh, I'm living proof. I'm no, I am no and never have been any F. Lee Bailey, but to whatever limited extent I've had success, it's because I really worked hard at creating relationships of trust and, and genuine, um, for lack of a better word, affection. Um, I, let me, I think let, let me just let, let me go for it. Is there room for the uh, injured party to to be appealed to? For example, let's say you say you have a you had your uh, honor student who, on some crazy whim, decided to break into his girlfriend's house or whatever it was, or his girlfriend's parents' house, and because of that, all of a sudden his life has changed. Is it possible that the parents can? can be mochel, as we say in, 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 in the Torah language, can they say that, you know, it occurred even though, can, can they come later and say we take it back? Is that ever possible? <laughs> well, um, I, I'm not sure if this is going to be responsive to your question, but uh, state's attorneys throughout the United States, and certainly in Cook County, are very responsive to uh, the complaining witnesses and victims of crimes. Um, and from a lawyer's perspective, when uh, complaining witnesses or victims are, are especially vocal and active with regard to the case, it makes uh, resolving these cases so much more difficult. So um, yes, complaining witnesses and victims uh, sometimes have an outsized um, influence on on the proceedings, at least from my perspective, they uh, they tend to sometimes drive uh, the resolution of these cases in a bad way. And you're saying that if they, you mean if if they want prosecution to occur? Correct. Correct. Then everybody gets scared. This the. This, the prosecutors get scared. The judges get scared. They don't want to offend anybody. They don't want. Uh, bad publicity, and it makes resolving the case for what everybody otherwise would know would be in a reasonable and appropriate way very but, difficult. But I, I was saying, is there some way the state's attorney or the private attorney could appeal to, let's say in my case, the girlfriend's parents and say, will you please drop the charges And this way? can't is, is that something that could happen? Or once it's in the system, it's too late? <laughs> Well, I could tell you one thing, if the defense or the defendants or the defendant's family or us go up to the victim and start saying, can't you please drop the charges? 
uh, as a defense attorney, we would be in so much trouble. And as the, the defendant's family, th that would create uh, new criminal charges for them. You yeah. can't, we always can't tell that. our defendants, don't get near the victims or their families, nor do we. Go on, Jonathan. Oh, I was just going to say that. I, I would... Um, I'm saying, but what's the logic behind the the resistance? It would seem, right? You know, you know, I, I, because we have laws. I mean, you're going to make me play devil's advocate here, yeah. but but I, the answer is because we have laws, and if a law was broken, then it's for the courts to determine uh, if it was broken, and then what the punishment ought to be. It's not like a baked dean. It's you know, it's a criminal justice system where it's not issues of equity. It's a matter of, you know, consequences. Mm -hmm. Right. We could, we often do ask though, uh, Rabbi, uh, this is the closest I could get to, to doing what you're talking about. We often go to the state's attorney and say, would you please uh, go to the uh, victims and tell them A, B, and C. If, the, the, if you can convince the state's attorneys to help you out with the victims, that's legitimate, legal, and just, but we can't do it directly ourselves. I did it today on a domestic battery case. I couldn't, all that I could do was to tell the state's attorney, you have got to talk to your victim. She is going to tell you a very different story now than when she told the police. And with that, I really do kind of have to get going, Rabbi. I hope. Uh... In the federal prison where I used to work, I know cases where People, they were guilty, they pled guilty, they got five years, they got 10 years. And people who maintain their innocence and they have a pretty strong case to, to defend their innocence and there might have been some bias involved or other issues. And because they maintain their innocence, uh, they'll be faced with 30 years and they, and they maintain their innocence. And they, and they... May I address that, please? Yes. The way the system is set up, rightly or wrongly in the federal system or in the state system that you get a better deal if you plead guilty. And the reason is this, if you're going to get 10 years, if you plead guilty, and if you go to, to a jury trial, you're going to get 10 years, then everybody, a hundred percent of the people would go to trial because they have nothing to lose and a certain percent of the people will actually win. So what they do, and it's completely unconstitutional uh, and morally wrong, is you put a what they call a jury tax on the system. So you're offered two years. You go to a jury trial, you get 10 years. That's the way the system has to be set up because it cannot have everybody or a majority of the people, or a significant minority of the people going to trial because the system doesn't have the time and the people to allow everybody to go to trial. And the other thing I would say is I think that it's disingenuous to believe that people constantly are being arrested and accused of crime without any evidence. So they may maintain their innocence, but there's a sufficient amount of evidence to make them look like they have committed the crime. Otherwise, the systems wouldn't bother prosecuting them. There is evidence against them. Well, uh, the cases I'm thinking of is that, you know, sometimes, particularly when it comes to sexual abuse case, rape cases, a lot of it is he said, she said, really without any evidence, without, and, and there's, you know, there are times when there are physical evidence and, and not, you know, there, there are two particular cases that I can think of, you know, and then on, on the other hand, someone who, ha you know, uh, and, and what, just, what just upsets me is, you know, when I see there's someone who I know who had many victims, got away and, and he pled guilty, he got five years, and then other people who there are accusations that are made against him. There's a lot of, and there's no evidence. It's just he said, she said. And then there's uh, a lot of political reasons why people are opposing these people. And they, they wind up with 30 years, 105 years. These are cases I know of firsthand. What, you know, 
Rabbi, let me ask you a question. What is the difference between one witness pointing out someone, he's the guy who robbed me, and that's the only evidence they have, and time and time again, people are convicted on the single evidence of that person pointing to the defendant and saying, he's the guy who robbed me. What's the difference between that case where they're convicted every day in courtrooms across America and a woman who claims she was raped and she says, he raped me, that's the guy who did it. Why, is, why do you call that not evidence? It's clear, important evidence and their credibility can be tested through cross-examination, but that evidence is as good as the guy who said on he robbed me on the street. The well, woman I, is credible, and you, you, I don't think you should say that there's no evidence in the case when she, the evidence is her. Well, when, when, when there's clear evidence that a woman was raped, she went to the hospital, she, ha she had the rape kit, she had all of that, you know, there's the evidence that she was raped. And so then now the question is, who did it? Whereas, whereas someone is, is tell, you know, there, uh, uh, you know, one case I can think of, there was a man who was, uh, who, who had a relationship with an underage woman openly and married her. And he was thrown out of a synagogue for smoking on Shabbos. And the police came and he said, I'm going to take revenge. And so then his victim goes and, and claims that her, uh, you know her uh the person who who was counseling her uh raped her and that was the that was the revenge that this man said he, who who who's married to his victim and and he gets away with it and the person who is not you know is she you know he got 105 years you know these are this is just a, you know this, that was a state case or you know there there's uh let me just interrupt over i i think i have another answer to to bob's question I think when you have two total strangers on the street and you have someone who owns a bodega who files charges against someone who has entered into his, uh, into, and, and puts him up in a lineup and says, he's the one who came into the store. He was the one waving the gun, et cetera. There is no pre-existing reason to think that a stranger should bring that claim unless, right? Whereas when you have a relationship, Bob, you know that there's always issues that go much deeper than necessarily what's being talked about in court. So if, if it is a relationship, whether it's a marriage or a boyfriend-girlfriend over a period of months or weeks, that could lend itself to, uh, um, to I think, attack the credibility of the accuser. Well, first of all, I think that rape case cases are in a separate category from other crimes in terms of there are different scenarios where a person could be considered to have been raped and others that it isn't so clear. Everybody agrees that if you're taking off the street by a guy with a knife and, and takes you to an alley and rapes you and you can identify who it is, then that's the clearest kind of rape case there is. But it's also true that you're allowed in Illinois that you can rape your wife. If your wife says, no, 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 and you do it anyways, that's rape. And so I think that each case has to stand on its facts and the credibility of the people. And we don't always get it right because the only ones who know if the crime committed, whether it's rape or not rape, are the victims and the people who did it. What we do in a court of law is secondhand, thirdhand information. So the truth doesn't always come out, but we do the best we can because that's the way a judicial system works. We don't always get it right, but we overwhelmingly get it right. Or I, 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 another case of not, it's not, not, not if, if your argument is that there is injustice in the world and there is a quantity of cases that are completely unfair, nobody would argue with that. What we do have, that we have a, a system that we've set up that I think is the envy of the democratic world, that we basically get it right, but not always. No one's denying that innocent people go to jail. Nobody is denying 
that they get the wrong guy uh, sometimes. But I think that your anecdotal evidence does not give the system a fair shake. I think we really overall do a good job. Well, 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 let me just. I, I agree. Overall, we do do a good yeah, job. Not, well, and, and you, of course, as, and you work for the Department way that there could be a system that could um, uh, maximize the quality of the public defenders by keeping them within the system instead of jumping at the private uh, practice by, uh, you know, the stipends and the monies that they're receiving should be commensurate. I would assume one of the reasons why you have a dearth of, 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 of really dedicated, intelligent, compassionate, savvy public defenders is because there's more money to be made in the private sector and you know the, the, the hours are better. Is there some way that we could upgrade that? Is there, is there some way that the monies, I mean, we, we talked about putting money, the, the, the U.S. government just spent, or at least agreed for $3 trillion dollars isn't it possible that, 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 that some monies in state and federal budgets can go for, uh, to, to make sure that the public defenders are of, of a higher standard being paid enough to stay within their jobs? And Here's my who- answer to that, Rabbi. When I uh, was in law school, I saw a sign that said, juvenile court volunteers needed. And I went, I loved it. I volunteered for the next 11 months. When they hired me on, when I became a lawyer, they didn't have money for a lawyer. So they hired me on for $3 an hour uh, for the first six months that I was a working attorney. When they finally gave me a lawyer's um, salary, it was $14,000 a year. And my point is this, the public defender's job are those for people that are dedicated uh, to what they are doing, they're not in it for the money. The ones who stay are not in it for the money. Uh, They're in it for the dedication of being part of the criminal justice system of America. So no, we're not going to get the money that private attorneys make or that if you go into some kind of corporate law, you would make, but so what? The idea of, I don't think you became a rabbi because of the money. It's because you were dedicated to what you were doing. And I feel at the best possible way that the public defender is a job that you're dedicated to. And if you're not dedicated to it, you have other options to leave the office, go into private practice to make more money. I personally was in private practice for a few years And I didn't like it because the job became about money. How much money can I make from this case? So I went back to the public defender's office because it was more interesting to me to not worry about the money and just get a salary. I I, I guess I wasn't clear, Bob, and I'm not trying to be pedantic. My point is that if if, if it's only an idea of your morals and ideals, Many people are going to say, I, 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 had to, I, I would love to stay there, but my growing family and other things meant I had to leave that position. If it could be at least, maybe not the amount of money that Johnny Cochran and Barry Schweck and, 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 and Dershowitz are making, but at least the amount that could be a living wage. So this way, that would be able to keep more people. It shouldn't be like you said, three dollars an hour, six dollars an hour, and 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 the payment that you get is the satisfaction. There's got to be a way to recognize, just like the teachers' union in the public schools has negotiated for a pretty nice salary and benefits. There should be a similar situation for you guys. Everybody who works deserves more money. The person deserves fifteen dollars. If, if it's only an idea of your morals and ideals, many people are going to say, I, 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 had to, I, I would love to stay there, but my growing family and other things meant I had to leave that position. If it could be at least, maybe not the amount of money that Johnny Cochran and Barry Schweck and, 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 and Dershowitz are making, but at least the amount that could be a living wage 
So this way, that would be able to keep more people. It shouldn't be like you said, $3 an hour, $6 an hour, and, 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 and the payment that you get is the satisfaction. There's got to be a way to recognize, just like the teachers union in the public schools has negotiated for a pretty nice salary and benefits, there should be a similar situation for you guys. Everybody who works deserves more money. The person deserves $15 an hour who's now getting six. The dedicated nurse means gets should get more money. The teachers should get more money. We are just in line with everybody else who feels like they should be paid more and they're worth more than they're getting paid. We have in the public defender's office a union who fights for better conditions, health insurance, and wages. So it's structured to do that, but it's not a job that you stay at long if you're interested in the growing family and, and supporting them. It's just not a job. It was good for me, but it didn't mean it was necessarily good for Jonathan Minkus. And, and first of all, I, I, I remember I had a stellar as a rabbi, you're asking about, and they didn't pay me a living wage. They paid less than what my rent was. And I couldn't, and even though it was part-time, I couldn't devote the amount of time that I needed to serve that position because I was running around doing three other jobs uh, and, and I, I couldn't compete that someone else opened another shul and we couldn't compete. And it, it, it you know, that, that adds to what you're saying. But I, I remember in Virginia, I had a, a traffic case and at the time I was indigent and, and I was appointed a, a court, a court appointed attorney. And so instead of it being a public defender that that's all he or she does and that's their only job, what they actually had was, uh, and there are members of the bar that they uh, apply for this, that something they do extra on the side is that they are appointed as a, a court-appointed attorney, um, you know, instead of being, you know, just being designated as a public defender, people who have successful law firms will take a case and 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 do that, and I think that Still, you know, they're maybe not going to give as much because they're they're not pay, being paid as much as they usually would, but they're still being paid a, a decent amount for their services. Um, but okay, so about a hundred dollars, hundred and fifty. It doesn't work because those people are less qualified to take those cases. You don't want yeah. some civil lawyer uh, take an armed robbery case when he knows something nothing about the the system. You don't want a, a person who has cancer going to a pediatrician. We are a specialized group and you need the people who are experienced to take the cases that are serious. Well, you know, again, I think we've raised uh, the issues uh, and we've tried to expand. What we can do with our podcast is, is keep the public informed, let them understand what's going on. And this way, good minds can come together and talk about possible solutions and ways to make the public, to make the criminal justice system more fair. Uh, and, and, and obviously, information is what empowers. Bob, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. And Rabbi? Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 